Father, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Father, we need your spirit to open our eyes to the glory of Jesus and the wonder of the good news about him. Please do that this morning as we hear the Bible read out, as we hear your word read and proclaimed to us. Lord, by your spirit, open our hearts and our minds to see Jesus again, perhaps for the 50th time, perhaps even for the first time, to see clearly uh, what it is that you have done for us in Christ, in Jesus. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 15, 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got all together, all he had, sorry, he got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your father has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who, was, who had squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. 
My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Okay, well, uh, good morning. It's uh, lovely to see you here. As Duncan said, my name's Jeff. I'm uh, also a visitor here this morning. I'm one of the assistant ministers at Trinity in the city up in Adelaide. It's uh, great to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, could I ask you please to take out the handout that you were given as you came in and you'll see on the inside cover of that little yellow coloured handout an outline of what I'm going to talk about. Uh, and also you should find either the Bible that you were given or else the little white insert has the passage printed there for you which will be useful for you to have that in front of you. I'm going to refer to that a number of times uh, over the next uh, 25 minutes or so. Uh, well, um, I reckon this is probably the greatest Bible passage ever, isn't it? Uh, it's one that we've all heard of. Uh, it speaks of the power of God's love and his grace and his mercy. Uh, and it says pretty simply, uh, come home while you can. It's never too late. Uh, the story of the prodigal son in fact, is so well known in popular culture. Uh, it's been reappropriated and used in lots of different circumstances to describe both failure but then redemption and a fresh start that all I want to do this morning is just point out some of the shocks in the story. Some of the shocks that, having heard the story so many times, I think we gloss over and being reminded of them helps us to see what it is that Luke, the writer, wants us to take from it. Let me say from the outset, though, that what most people don't realise about this story, uh, and when I say most people, I mean Christians and those who aren't, what most people don't realise about this story is that, in fact, it's a story of two lost sons. One who runs away, but one who never leaves home. Shock number one. Uh, you can't ask that. You can't ask that. Uh, you might have seen there's a TV show going around at the moment called You Can't Ask That, where people are given the opportunity to ask the things that one must not ask, to say the things that one must not say. And it's a good way of describing how the parable that Jesus tells begins. It's not particularly fashionable to dwell on the younger son's fall from grace. Uh, of course, we prefer the good news stories, the stories of redemption and of hope. But redemption makes no sense until you feel just how outrageous, how scandalous his request of his father is. In a nutshell, the youngest son is basically saying, Dad, you're worth no more to me than an ATM, you know, an automatic teller machine. You're worth no more to me than that. So you might as well, dead be, now. You might as well be dead now. And can you give me the cash whilst I'm young enough to be able to enjoy it still? It's interesting that Jesus doesn't get distracted by all the questions that pop into our minds when we hear someone say something like that. I found myself thinking, what if I were to ring up my father, lives in another state, he's in his 70s, what if I were to ring him up and say this to him, how might he react? There's a whole series of questions for us, aren't there, that run through our mind when we hear what Jesus says. Why does the Father agree? Why doesn't he throw him out and disown him? 
has he realised that he's already lost his son? And so maybe all he's doing is trying to keep the door open just in case down the track his son changes his mind. Jesus doesn't answer those questions. He just rushes on with the story. And sure enough, soon enough, it all falls apart for the younger son. Are you surprised? I mean, what kind of a man do you think he must have been if he could have said to his father, I wish you were dead? But in a moment of clarity, when everything's all fallen apart, the younger son decides that he'll go back home and apologise and see if he'll still be welcome. So we come to shock number two. Shock number two, the prodigal is welcomed home. Of course, what's amazing in this story is that the father forgives the son unconditionally. He's just so thrilled to have his little boy back that we're told he welcomes him with open arms. He embraces him, he kisses him, he celebrates, he even restores him to his previous honoured position as a son, not just a menial servant, which is all that he thought that he might be entitled to. Now, in case you haven't worked it out, I'm sure you have, but in case you haven't worked it out, in the parable, the father represents God and the son represents you and I. And so at this point, I could dwell on the incredible nature of God's forgiveness. And that would be a profitable thing for us to do. Uh, but instead, let me limit my comments at this point to just this. No matter what you've done, you can always come back home to God. No matter what you have done, you can always come back home to God. Uh, because no matter what you have done, if I can put it this way, no matter what you have done, you cannot have done worse than the younger son did. You cannot do worse than say to God, I wish you were dead. But even the one who says that is welcome back. Because God is forgiving and merciful. And with him there is free and full forgiveness for anyone who dares ask. And I suppose at this point I want to speak directly to those of us here with tender consciences. To those of us who live lives that are somewhat racked by guilt, by our failures, by our misdeeds. To those of us who think, well surely, yes, God forgives others, but he could not forgive me for what I have done. He could not forgive that. I want to speak to those of us who are Christians here today, who've lived for years trying to follow Jesus, and yet we are all too conscious of the sins that we have committed even since turning to him. Let me say, please don't let your past mistakes stop you. They ought be no hindrance to you coming back to God, because they are no hindrance to him forgiving you. After all, this is a story primarily about God. He is the main character. Now imagine, if you will, if you were there at the time as Jesus tells this story, 
that's what it was, of course. Jesus was telling the story. There's a bunch of people gathered around. And in particular, imagine if you were one of the religious leaders who had come out to see, listen, to check out who this Jesus was and what he stood for. I imagine that if you were one of those religious leaders, you would be, at this point, you would be nodding. You'd be in agreement with what Jesus has to say about God. If you're an old-time Baptist, you'd be going, Amen! Preach it, brother! Because so far, Jesus has said exactly what we expect him to say. Jesus has said, everyone deserves a second chance. Everyone can have a second chance, if only they will repent and come back to God. The problem is, that's not how the leaders of the day reacted. And to see that, we need to go back to the start of the chapter. We're halfway through chapter 15. Go back to the start of chapter 15 and to see the context. Verses 1 and 2, I printed there on your handout to save you looking it up. Here's how the chapter begins. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. What Jesus does in verses 4 through 7 is that he tells the parable of a lost sheep. And then verses 8 through 10, he tells the story of a lost coin. And then verses 11 through 32, the passage we've just had read today, the parable of a lost son. Jesus is telling the story against the religious leaders of the day. Those who criticised Jesus for the fact that he hung out with tax collectors, tax collectors and sinners. Uh, I'm, I mentioned before that I work at Trinity City. Some of you will know it. It's uh, right in the middle of the CBD. At the back of our church is Hindley Street, the red light district of Adelaide. Uh, and I've often heard it said by people that if Jesus were to return and to come back to Adelaide, you'd be more likely to find him on Hindley Street on a Saturday night than you would be to find him in a church building on Sunday morning. And there's a certain degree of truth in that, I think. Because that's the exact thing that the religious leaders, the establishment, criticised Jesus for. For hanging out with disreputables. And so at this point, the story takes an unexpected turn. We move at this point away from that errant younger brother. We turn now to the dutiful, older, very obedient firstborn who up until this point in the story has not even been mentioned. Because he, of course, is not scandalous in any way, is he? Or is he? Shock number three. You can be lost without ever leaving home. You can be lost without ever leaving home. Unsurprisingly, the older brother, the firstborn, the older son, is not very pleased about the return of his good-for-nothing younger brother. Uh, In fact, we discover he's quite angry. The question is why and with whom? Is he angry with his sibling or is he angry with his father? At one level, superficially, it looks like he's upset by what his younger brother has got away with yet again. Look at all the damage he's caused. And yet, he's not being held to account for his sins. 
Uh, it's worth me pointing out that how you compare and contrast the two sons in this story uh, probably depends on your own birth order. Uh, that will determine, really, which of the two you're most critical of in this story. Now, uh, let me ask you, who's an older sibling? Yeah, some of you. Uh, who's not an older sibling? Who's a younger sibling? Yeah, okay, some of us as well. Uh, well, I'm an older sibling, and that's going to make sense of everything I'm about to say. Uh, let me share what I would be thinking if I were the oldest son in this story. I'd just be rolling my eyes. Uh, because we older siblings, well, we're always expected to be perfect, aren't we? Uh, anytime there's a fight between children, we're the ones who get blamed, even if the younger ones started, and usually they're the ones who do, because they know that you know, they can do no wrong. Of course, if you're a youngest sibling here, well, my guess is that uh, you're probably thinking, hang on, hang on, it's not so easy being a youngest child. Uh, we're always the last to receive any privileges. Uh, we have to wear hand-me-downs. Uh, or, and this is a problem with university students I work with, we're the ones who get the hand-me-down mobile phones. That's a real problem. And, of course, there's never any fuss made about our achievements. You know, there's a billion baby photos of the first child, but... It's as if, you know, we just dropped out of the sky when we were 10. And of course, some of us, I should say, some of us here are middle siblings, middle children. Uh, I apologise, I actually forgot all about you, but actually that's normally what happens, isn't it? But it becomes pretty evident, doesn't it, in the story, that in fact the oldest son's gripe is not with his younger brother. His real issue is with his father. Because as the prodigal is welcomed home, the oldest brother feels like he's been treated unfairly. After all, he never left. He slaved away for years. And there's never been any recognition of his hard work, of his efforts, of his toil. Verse 29 talks about how he was not even given a young goat to celebrate with his friends, whereas the younger son, he's come back, the fattened calf has just been slaughtered for him. The oldest brother has always done the right thing. He has never disgraced the family. He has never failed. He is the one who stayed behind to look after the family, to clean up the mess, to console the father when the youngest son had broken his heart. And so the older son thinks that he deserves to be rewarded for his obedience. Do you notice that he refers to his younger brother as this son of yours? This son of yours? It's as if to emphasise that he's already disowned his younger brother. And he talks about how this younger brother has squandered his father's wealth on prostitutes. Now, that might have been true, but there's no mention of that in the story up until this point. So I presume the only reason the older brother even says it is to hurt his father, to rub his nose in it. When he talks about his younger brother squandering his father's property, what he really means, I think, is that his youngest brother has squandered not his father's property, he has squandered the older brother's property. 
Because if you think about it, that's exactly what's happened. When the youngest son, who took his half of the inheritance, wasted it all, comes home and is welcomed back, what's he being given? He's been given out of the other half, which belongs now, really, to the older brother. So here's my point. Can you see how the older son is, in fact, no different from the younger son? Can you see that he is guilty of exactly the same sin against his father? Because his reaction shows what he really thinks of his father. Here's what the older brother thinks of his dad. Dad, you're worth no more to me than what I can get out of you. That's exactly what the younger son had said. Because the older son's problem is that he hasn't understood what the father has already given him. He's not understood what it means to be a son, to belong to this particular family. It's not about having goats to celebrate. It's about intimacy and relationship. It's about belonging. You see that because the very first thing that the father says to the oldest son is, my son, you are always with me. My son, you are always with me. It's why the father responds uh, to the older brother calling his youngest brother this son of yours. The father points out that he's your brother. And he's doing it to emphasize, I think, that in the end, relationships are what make life worth living. There is no point in having everything in acquiring everything, in seeing everything, in achieving everything, in owning everything, if there is no one to enjoy it with. I think we know that to be true. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, (coughs) You know how you can uh, enter into competitions, win a holiday, win a trip, win a vacation? They're always for two, aren't they? Not for one. Because relationships are what make life worth living. So what we see in the older brother in this story is that there are not one but two lost sons. We see that you can be lost without ever leaving home. We see that you can go to church all your life You can go through the motions of it. You can do your best to keep those commandments and even do, to be frank, a pretty good job of it and still not love God for who he is, for the joy of knowing him, for the delight of being known by him and belonging to him. And you can forget that in the end, the first thing that a Christian ever says to God is, Dad. 
The test to see if you've succumbed to this is if you started to think that somehow God owes you. If you've started getting cranky when he doesn't give you what you want because he thinks that he ought to reward you for your obedience. When the best thing of all that God has given us is himself. You know, sometimes there's that uh, dinner question. It's a bit of a fun question. It's a, an introductory, a get-to-know-you question. The question goes like this. Uh, who in history would you most like to have a meal with? And of course, uh, the Christian version is, who in history would you most like to have a meal with, but you can't say Jesus? Right? So you have to say someone else. Which I think is kind of stupid, really. Because isn't the point that all of us would say the person we'd most like to have a meal with is the one who made me? The one who saved me? The one who sees the depths of my heart and loves me still the same? Now, please don't let what I've talked about today cause you to get all angsty and start second-guessing yourself. Make you wonder if, oh, I have been going all to church all my life, but perhaps I haven't really had a relationship with Jesus. That's not my purpose or point. Let me show you how by turning us to our fourth and final shock, where we discover that the Father is waiting on the veranda. He's pleading with us to come inside. So shock number four, no failure is too big to be forgiven. (coughs) When the older brother refuses to come in, uh, the father, we're told, goes outside, verse 28, and begins to plead with him. Now that's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, If it were me, it's always risky when you start a sentence with that, when, of course, the father represents God. So what I'm saying is if I were God, you know this sentence is not going to finish particularly well, But if it were me, and the oldest brother is outside refusing to come in, do you know what I'd say? I'd say to hell with him, (laughs) to be frank. I mean, who wants him inside anyway if he's just going to come in and sock and ruin the mood? Uh, But God's love for us is so great that even when we won't come inside, even when we won't admit our failures, He doesn't give up. He comes out to us. And the proof of that, of course, is that Jesus is the one telling this parable. Jesus, the Son of God, who leaves his Father's throne in heaven to come to us, even though we're the ones who've run away. He does it to bring us home again. And of course, the only reason I suspect why in the story the father didn't do the same with the younger son, why he didn't go and find him, was because he didn't know where he was. But did you notice there back in verse 20, we're told that whilst the younger son was still a long way away, the father saw him and ran to him. I think the suggestion in the story is that the father was waiting each day. Each day that his younger son has gone, he goes out and stands on his veranda, looking 
hoping that today might be the day when what was lost might be found. So let me finish then. So what for us? Uh, Let me summarise. What Jesus is saying, I think, is that we're all as bad as each other. Some of us hide by running away from God and indulging in wild living. Some of us hide behind slavish obedience, even though we've never left home. And that means that none of us deserve to be restored. None of us is entitled to any reward because all of us are failures. Whether you're the good-for-nothing younger child or the holier-than-thou older sibling. You know that trick question that uh, parents get asked? I get asked this sometimes. Which of your children do you love most? Uh, My answer is, I love all of my children equally because they're all equally undeserving. That's true for me, in my family, with my siblings. Uh, But recall that this is a story from verses 1 to 3. This is a story that Jesus tells against the Pharisees and the tax collectors, against the churchgoers. Which means, I think, that the story is particularly a warning for Christians, particularly for those of us who have grown up in church, for those of us who have never known a day when we didn't know the Lord. The older son, I think, stands for everyone who hides behind the fact that we're not like others, we're not as bad as others. I was never a drug-dealing axe murderer before I became a Christian. I've always been a good person. Although secretly, of course, I think some of us wish that we had that kind of testimony. (laughs) When I hear people say that, they say, oh, you know, my story is boring. I grew up in church all my life. Uh, I want to say there's nothing boring about growing up in a Christian family because you can still be lost without ever leaving home. You have to come back at some point. To drive it home, Jesus is saying, I think, that those who've grown up in church-going families, those who go to church every week, we are the ones who are most at risk of thinking that we deserve preferential treatment because of all that we have endured, suffered, given up for God. Uh, This is tempting, I think. This is somewhat tempting for me. I've been a pastor for 14 years and it would be easy for me to think, look how much I've given up for God. Surely I'm entitled to good health or satisfaction. And if not for me, surely my kids are entitled to that because they never made this choice.
So let me finish then by asking, which of the two sons are you most like? Which of the two children do you most tend towards? Are you more likely to run away in active rebellion? Or are you more likely to just drift away from God over time? Perhaps with the pain of disappointment. If you're someone who's new to the faith, perhaps someone who's checking out Christianity, can I say that at some point you will make one of these two mistakes? Because all of us have. And all of us will. So in the end, the point of Luke 15 is not to draw our comparison with either of those two sons. The point of Luke 15 is to remind us of what our Father in heaven is like. He still loves us. And he will have us back. If only we will come inside and join the celebrations with him. All of us need to do that at some point in our lives. And the prayer for us is the same. Whether you've run away in search of empty fulfilment or you've become bitter about what you have not received, the prayer is always the same. It goes like this. Dad, I'm sorry. I realise I just want to be with you again. I've forgotten the delight and safety and joy and comfort of being safe in your arms. So please have me back. And the most wonderful news of the gospel is that the Father is there, arms open, waiting for us to come home. So what are you waiting for? I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray that prayer. Will you join me? Dad, I'm sorry. I realize I just want to be with you again. I've forgotten the delight and safety and joy and comfort of being safe in your arms. Would you please have me back? Thank you for Jesus. Amen.